So good to have you here at Campus House. Last week, we introduced the theme for the year, which is reframing the house. And that comes out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Like living stones, you are being built into a spiritual house. And last week, we said that there are two parts to this theme. There is the renovation of the heart and renovation of the house. The renovation of the heart is the the ongoing work of discipleship, of sanctification, of Jesus chipping away anything that doesn't look like him that is going on in each of us. And we mentioned last week that that process is both deconstruction and reconstruction. It's not just getting new information. It's not just learning new stuff. Discipleship is actually partially unlearning assumptions that we have about life and about God and about ourselves and about the world that we live in. And so there's this deconstruction and reconstruction process that is going on in us, but there's also this renovation of the house, this renovation of the church, this reno project that Jesus is doing in us together, framing and reframing what it means to be the church, what it means to be the body of Christ, to embody and demonstrate his kingdom and to impact the world for his glory. So that's the calling that each of us and all of us have. And the key verse from last week was 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 9 through 11, which says, You are God's house, but each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the questions from last week were these. What are you building your life on? What is the foundation of your life? When storms hit, and inevitably they will, how will your house hold up? What are you building your life on? In any foundation other than the resurrection of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the reality of Jesus will fall short. The second question was this. How are you building your life? What materials, what methods, whose expertise, whose strength are you building in? Who is guiding the process? And if you are a believer in Jesus, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide and equip and grow and mature and convict and encourage this building process. So what are you building your life on? How are you building your life? Is it with the Holy Spirit? And who are you building your life for? Are you living for your glory or for the glory of Jesus? Are you building your kingdom or are you building the kingdom of Jesus? We are most satisfied, John Piper says, when God is most glorified. So are we building for Christ and his kingdom, his hope? That is the true reason for our lives. Building your life on the foundation that is the resurrection of Jesus. Building your life with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and building your life for Christ in his kingdom, the resurrection of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the kingdom of Christ. These frame your life as a Jesus follower individually, but they also frame our lives together as his house. As Rick mentioned, today we begin our sermon series in the book of Acts. And in the prologue, Luke, the writer of Acts, talks about these very same three themes. These are the building blocks of the original church. Not a church building, but a movement of Jesus followers. And so we're going to 
go through the first few verses of Acts chapter 1 today, okay? Before we do, let me pray. God, thank you for these men and women gathered in this space on this morning to hear your word, to pray, to worship together, and we pray your blessing on our time. Jesus, we just want to encounter you. We want to get a sense, a glimpse of your kingdom. And so, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you stretch us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us today as we gather in your name? Name of Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Luke starts by saying, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Let me stop right there. In my former book, the writer of Acts is this doctor named Luke. And Luke was a historian. He also traveled with Paul on three of his missionary journeys. Paul was, was actually under house arrest for two years in Jerusalem. And during that time, Luke just went all over the place, just, just searching things out. He's a researcher. He would be a good, uh, you know, Purdue student. He researched everything from top to bottom from east to west. And so um, Luke wrote the gospel, and he says that this volume, volume two, this Acts of the Apostles is actually a continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's picking up where the Gospels left off. And he's writing to Theophilus, who most likely is a Roman uh, official, at a time when Christianity was rapidly spreading, but also starting to endure some persecution and some pushback from the Roman government, and definitely from the Jewish leaders. And so Luke is recording this unstoppable spread of the gospel, the continuing reign of Christ in his inaugurated kingdom of God. If you want to know what Acts is about, that's it. So let's go on. Acts 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These these verses give blueprints to everything that we will encounter in the book of Acts. The foundation is the resurrection. 
Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He encouraged them. He appeared to them. He assured them, erasing their doubts. He ate with them. He loved them. He connected the dots. They had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord for 40 days. They were eyewitnesses to this resurrection reality. And the second theme in these verses, in the prologue that set the scope for the whole book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit shows up several times in just these 11 verses, right? Eight verses so far. Jesus gave them instructions through the Holy Spirit. The apostles were to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the Father had promised to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told the the disciples right before the crucifixion that he must leave them in order to send the Holy Spirit. They were promised power from the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the good news. We're going to talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit, especially in two weeks on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. But suffice it to say that on every page of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the main player in the book of Acts. Okay? That's the second theme. The third one where we want to spend the, the chunk of our time today is the kingdom of God. Luke begins and ends, he bookends the whole book of Acts with this concept, this reality, this idea of the kingdom of God. In this passage, verse 3, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God to the apostles. In verse 6, the apostles asked Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The last verse of the whole book in chapter 28 says they were proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. And so we see the apostles go from what's the kingdom of God exactly to proclaiming the kingdom of God with boldness and without hindrance. In between the kingdom of God is the theme of the book of Acts. It's threaded throughout the storyline because Acts is the continuation of the kingdom theme that is played out on every page of the gospel. Matthew 4, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So here we are, at Purdue today, a couple of thousand years plus, removed from uh, using a word like kingdom. But Jesus was using this plot of Israel's story, one that his first century Jewish followers knew inside and out. They heard it every Saturday in the synagogue. They heard about it before they went to bed every night. The kingdom of God was so implanted on their minds and on their hearts. We have the opposite problem. Kingdom language is a bit foreign to us. And because the kingdom of God is such a big deal in the book of Acts, I wanted to give us a working knowledge of what is meant by the kingdom of God. And so the folks at the Bible Project have two incredible videos. They're short, and we're going to watch both of them today. 
They're also on YouTube, so you can share this mind-blowing stuff with your friends, okay? So, first one is the gospel in the kingdom. Take a look at this. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring Good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. 
Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Over and over, the Jewish people had heard about the promise of God's kingdom. They had strong assumptions about what it would look like. And because of the Roman occupation, they assumed that God's kingdom was about a revitalization of, of nationalism and of political revenge and individual success and materialism. Jesus retold the story. Just when they thought they knew the ending, he switched it. When our, our kids were little, my favorite book to read to them was The Stinky Cheese Man. Anybody remember The Stinky Cheese Man? A series of, of uh, fables that uh, were little twisted. <laughs> and uh, there's one uh, about the ugly duckling. And the typical story of the ugly duckling is that uh, it turns into a beautiful swan, right? In the Stinky Cheese version of the ugly duckling, the last page says this. Well, it turns out he was just really an ugly duckling, and he grew up to be just a really ugly duck. The end. <laughs> so, the author switched the ending, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Dallas Willard said the gospel of the kingdom was about something really big, something different, something that is to be experienced, not just spoken about. God's divine life that is available to us now, the present reality. And that was the essence of what Jesus said in Luke's gospel in chapter 17. The gospel of God is within you, Luke, Jesus says. The gospel, the kingdom of God is within you. Mark 1, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's immediate. You don't have to wait. It's not about going to heaven when we die. The kingdom of heaven is here now. It's the present reality that is within you. It's also the present reality that is through you. 1 Corinthians 4 says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And it's not the kind of power that people hoard or oppress others with. It's the kind of power that gives itself away. That's the upside down kingdom of Jesus. Brings healing to the broken Physical and social and spiritual needs are met through this kind of kingdom. And God calls us, the gospel calls us to be a different kind of people. So that wherever we are, we engage and bring the kingdom of God to that place. The present reality to be embodied 
and proclaimed, embodied, and demonstrated. Jesus didn't think of the kingdom as a safe bubble where a few lucky people escape the real world. He came to proclaim the kingdom to the whole world. So we get to this verse, Acts 1.8, which is this really incredible verse that sets a, a bit of a... Hmm, that's another foundation for the whole book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Dallas Willard writes, Jesus' commission to the early Christians was to bring the presence of the kingdom and its king into every corner of human life by simply, simply by fully living in the kingdom with him. Isn't that awesome? He says, churches are not the kingdom of God, but primary and inevitable expressions, outposts, and instrumentalities of the presence of the kingdom among us. They are societies of Jesus springing up in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, into the furthest reaches of the earth. The last three verses for today talks about the ascension of Jesus which overlaps with the end of Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Luke ends with the ascension. In Acts, he begins with it. He launches. It's the opening scene. Verse 9. After he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them from, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, these are angels, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. What? Jesus leaves, sort of. Jesus has been resurrected. He has promised the Holy Spirit. He teaches the disciples about the kingdom. He reorients them to the big picture of God. And now he leaves by way of the clouds and he promises to return the same way. The phrase taken up is found three times in the first chapter. Jesus in heaven, which brings a whole other bunch of questions. What in the world and where in the world is heaven? Is it about harps and clouds and unlimited golf, you know? Or what does it have to do with the kingdom of God? Those are excellent questions. And this is where the second short Bible project video is so incredibly helpful. Take a look at this one. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But 
this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. And now Jesus ascends to the Father and the disciples know that that promise could be fulfilled. So they go back to Jerusalem and they wait for the Holy Spirit spirit and they pray and they can't stop thinking about Jesus and his kingdom because now this has changed everything. In the words of Daryl Johnson, they were ordinary broken human beings gathered around the ascended Jesus to share in his life and be about his business in the world. That is us, not just them. That's something that that you and I can get excited about. That's something that you and I can commit our lives to. It's a new reality that we are invited to be a part of. Jesus ascends, the Spirit descends to empower us into a new reality. Luke starts his book by saying all that Jesus began to do. Acts is the second volume in a story that has no end. He isn't done. The life of Jesus goes on through his church. You belong to the church who carries on the life of Christ. You get to be a part of this upside-down kingdom. You get to be a part of the eradication of evil. You get to be a part of bringing justice, of loving the oppressed. You get to be a part of extending forgiveness, of bringing light into dark places, of bringing hope to the hopeless, of bringing peace to the chaos. The story is your story. Can you just say, this, this story is my story? Yeah, and this story is our story. We are in the in-between time, the already and the not yet. In the Gospels, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom. We know that in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus will, will bring his restoration project to completion when he returns. And so in the book of Acts, we see the story of storyline of the kingdom in action and it has a ripple effect in people's lives and in cities and in cultures and it's been reverberating for the last couple thousand years continuing into the here and now the present reality of Christ's kingdom.